Hey everybody, this is Adam Frank, your host, and this is episode two of Immigration Briefs, a podcast that reviews the latest immigration news every week. First item I wanted to talk about this week is about immigration and slow population growth in the United States. There are actually a couple articles, including one from Roll Call, that discussed this issue. The first part that they discussed is the U.S. population growth slowing drastically over the last decade. According to one article, population growth is at its slowest in the last eight decades. And looking at the 2020 census data, population growth is slower than any time since the Great Depression. In addition to all of this, immigration is also way down. While there were predictions back in 2019, there would be over 1.2 million new immigrants coming into the United States. In reality, there were less than 400,000. Certainly some people would look at this and say, well, that's great. Less population, less demand on the environment, etc. However, there are really two aspects of this that cause concern. The first is how this affects our economy. Slower population growth and slower immigration, especially at a time of expanding employment opportunities, means that companies will have a hard time filling open slots. And that could slow our economy down or even stop it. Currently, in the United States, there are about 8 million unemployed persons looking for jobs. And at the same time, there's about 10 million job openings. With this disparity already there, looking at our population growth going down, immigration going down, that will even exacerbate it even more. There are a couple articles talking about some small towns in Arkansas and other places and how immigration actually turned them from failing towns, towns where the economy was bottoming out, where they were having a hard time staying afloat, into successful towns that are flourishing, not just for the immigrants who moved in, but for the citizens who are there as well. The second issue here would be that if current trends hold, the number of active workers supporting each Social Security recipient could drop below the levels needed to sustain our Social Security system. So for those of you who are not aware, our Social Security system, basically a big Ponzi scheme. You know, those getting Social Security benefits now are getting those benefits based on what is being paid in by other people now. What the people who are getting Social Security now paid in was used to pay the people who were receiving Social Security back when they were working. Because of this, there's always a need for a constant influx of new workers to support the Social Security system and make sure it remains solvent. Now, there, there was a point in time where there was a fund for Social Security that was supposed to see it through these types of, you know, lower employment, higher employment type times. However, it was back in the 80s under Ronald Reagan when this fund was used for other purposes and was never replenished. Therefore, at this point in time, there needs to be approximately three to four workers for each Social Security recipient in order to fully fund Social Security. And we're already getting below that level now, let alone in the near future, 
when this uh, population growth slows even more. Now, luckily, there is a good solution to this issue, which is increased immigration. You know, and it's very interesting that there are also, at the same time, news articles out there that are still talking about immigrants stealing jobs from U.S. workers, which couldn't be further from the truth. First off, as stated earlier, there are more than enough jobs right now for all the U.S. workers looking for jobs. Second, should be noted that a lot of people in the U.S. now, primarily because of the COVID pandemic, are actually looking for new jobs, looking to work from home, looking to switch careers, starting their own businesses. In fact, entrepreneurship is skyrocketing. A lot of this means that not only are there the jobs available now, but there could be more jobs available in the future. And when this is coupled with the articles that discuss how immigration actually helps create jobs, we can see that having more immigrants is only going to help in the long run. Hopefully we can move to a point where everyone can agree on this, and we can expand immigration to help with both these issues. The second item, which is somewhat related to this, deals with postdocs not being able to re-enter the U.S. because of COVID restrictions. So as some of you may know in the U.S. right now, about 50% of postdocs are non-immigrants. Actually, it's a little bit higher than that. They're primarily on J-1 or H-1B visas. And also now, there are currently COVID restrictions in place that make it hard for these people, if they are in the U.S. and leave, to re-enter, or if companies, universities, or our government are trying to bring them in, hard for them to get visas and come in. Now, the COVID restrictions primarily are covering now China, Europe, the Shenzhen area, and uh, Brazil and South Africa. And what these COVID restrictions are doing is preventing people from getting certain non-immigrant visas in those areas, requiring them to leave the area for at least two weeks to go somewhere else and try to get a visa there. Problem with that is many other countries are already extremely backlogged in giving out visas, and not all countries accept people from third countries to give them visas. Now, while it seems like, okay, well, these are COVID restrictions, we should be okay with that. It's protecting the U.S. There's a couple things about that that we should keep in mind. The first is, at least Europe right now, requiring anyone who's traveling to either be vaccinated or to have a negative COVID test within the last two days. And in fact, they accept less vaccinations than the United States, meaning they require usually that it be one of the major vaccinations out there, Johnson & Johnson, etc., whereas the U.S. will accept any vaccination. So because their requirements are the same as the United States, it, it seems a little bit at odds as to why we're not accepting that. Second, in all these areas, there are exceptions to these COVID restrictions. And there's two exceptions. One is called a national interest exemption, and for that you need to apply and show that the work you're doing is in the national interest, and therefore you should be exempt from this presidential proclamation. The problem with that 
is right now it's taking at least 60 days for them to adjudicate these national interest exemptions. And, and postdocs who are leaving the U.S. and want to come back only have 30 days that they can be outside the U.S. and have their J-1 remain valid. The second type of exemption is what is called a blanket exemption, meaning our government has said that people in these statuses or in these situations are automatically exempt from the COVID restrictions and can get visas and can travel to the U.S. from these areas. Some of these blanket exceptions include F1 students, M1 students, J1 au pairs, among others. And it seems a little odd, a little random as to why these were picked for a blanket exemption. It's not like a student is less likely to bring in COVID than a postdoc or anybody else coming to the United States. And while it is true that our universities in the United States really depend on foreigners for their funding, it's also true that many universities and government research organizations depend on these foreign postdocs in order to run. You know, I, I gave the figure of over 50% of postdocs in the U.S. being foreigners. At NIH, the National Institutes of Health, over 50% of the postdocs are also foreigners. And if you look at the previous item that we talked about, it's clear that right now the U.S. can't fill the job openings that there are, let alone if there were new job openings, even in these areas. So it's really imperative that the U.S. stop starts to address this problem and work out some way that these postdocs can get back to the United States if they were to leave. The third item today is dealing with undocumented immigrants and how they've been slow to get the COVID vaccine. Now, there have been a lot of press stories out there about the dangers of undocumented immigrants spreading COVID and how it's an issue, and that's why we need to really tighten up the border and, and not let these people in. However, when you look at the actual issue, it's not that undocumented immigrants are unwilling to get the vaccine. It's that they're not aware that they're able to get the vaccine. They're not aware of where to get the vaccine. And they're concerned about what's going to happen when they go to get the vaccine. So let's look at each of these issues separately. First off, if you look at the web pages and literature that many states are giving out, it's all in English, for one. Second time, it doesn't indicate in a lot of cases that undocumented immigrants are eligible for the vaccine or that their immigration status will not be checked. And in a lot of places, they're talking about, well, you require certain types of ID in order to get the vaccine. The problem with all these things is that it's working to ensure that these undocumented people aren't going to come in and get the vaccine. They don't speak English. There's no way they're going to find out about it. Even if they do, they don't know that they're eligible. And even if they realize they're eligible, they're not going to go in because there's no guarantee. There's nothing on the websites or in the literature that says, look, don't worry, we're not going to check your non-immigrant, your immigration status. 
we're not going to turn you into ice and have you deported just for getting the vaccine. And sadly enough, it's a lot of the states that are complaining the loudest about undocumented people uh, bringing in COVID who are doing the least to get these people vaccinated. While right now the Biden administration is actually working on reaching out to this segment of the population and getting them vaccinated, it would be very helpful if states, especially these states that are complaining, did their best and worked hard to reach out to this segment of the population and to help them get vaccinated. Next item is talking about the unused employment-based immigrant visas going to waste. Now, I did talk about this in the last podcast, how there are a number of employment-based green cards out there, and I talked about how the unused family-based green cards from 2020 were going to be applied to 2021. Well, this week there were several articles talking about the fact that immigration is unable to use up all the employment-based immigrant visas from this year. And they were talking about how, well, if they can't use them all, they're just going to go to waste. While it is certainly true that we would love to see USCIS use up all the employment-based green cards, there's certainly enough backlogs out there and they apply it to it and they are moving extremely slow on these cases and we'd love them to move quicker. It is also true, however, that if they don't use these visas up, they will not go to waste. I explained last episode, instead, these unused employment-based green cards from this fiscal year, which is the fiscal year 21, will get allocated to family-based immigrant visas in fiscal year 23, so next October. And it's just important to keep in mind that we shouldn't consider this a waste because they will be reused. Now, the articles did talk a lot about the backlogs as well, and you know it's important to look at that because it can take a year or two years right now for people who apply for a green card to actually get it. You know, so people know that in Maryland alone, right now there are over 150 active court cases against USCIS because of these timelines and the fact that they're not using visas this year, and they're trying to get to the courts to determine that they should keep using these visas for employment-based green cards and to adjudicate these cases quicker. The next item comes to us from the Catholic bishops in the United States and how they're supporting the, the immigration provisions in the Budget Reconciliation Bill. So if you remember, last episode I talked about how there's a budget reconciliation bill out right now that included a couple of immigration provisions, one of which would help those in the U.S. who are undocumented on a path to getting green cards and eventually citizenship. The U.S. bishops this week came out with a statement fully supporting this immigration provision. What they stated is that while Catholic social teaching is implicated by many components of the budget resolution, We are pleased that the resolution sets up an opportunity for many undocumented persons to receive legal status. And I think most importantly, they went on to say, undocumented people in the United States are frequently at risk of mistreatment and exploitation 
because they lack legal status. Deporting millions of longtime residents would be unworkable and only serve to fragment families and harm local communities, especially when so many have U.S. citizen children and spouses, own homes and businesses, and serve as essential workers. Hopefully, more groups can look at this, take it to heart, and also indicate their support of this bill. Another article that came out this week talked about a judge ruling against the metering, metering of asylum applicants being unconstitutional. Now, this court case came up in San Diego at the federal level, and it was a court case brought against USCIS, or actually CBP, Customs and Border Protection, which controls the borders, against their practice of metering. Metering is something that CBP put in place several years ago, which limits the number of people at the border who can apply for asylum. So if they select 50 for the day, the first 50 people who get to the border and apply for asylum will be allowed in the United States, and they will take their statements, they will process them, and if they feel that there is a reasonable cause for their asylum claim, they will release them and allow them to pursue the claim, or they could put them in removal proceedings if they don't think that there's reasonable cause, or remove them immediately. After they reach that number 50, that's where the Remain in Mexico policy comes into place, and they will keep everyone else, turn them away, they're required to stay in Mexico, and come back the next day, or the day after that, or the day after that, whenever they can get in that initial group of people. According to the judge in this case, he found that first it violated the Fifth Amendment due process provisions because these people were not provided due process. Second, he found that it violated the Immigration and Nationality Act. Now, the Immigration and Nationality Act says that any alien who is physically present or arrives in the U.S. may apply for asylum and requires immigration officials to inspect all applicants for admission. Customs and Border Protection claimed that it was following that provision, but it was just delaying the inspection piece, not denying them an inspection. The court strongly disagreed with this, said the INA is clear in its language and that they cannot put off their duty to inspect. Now. It's important to note that the judge did not rule on relief yet and indicated that a new hearing will be scheduled instead to determine what relief will be granted. We'll update you as soon as we hear anything. The last item we're going to discuss is a new law in Illinois allowing public defenders to represent immigrants in deportation proceedings. So just this week, Chicago joined 40 40 other jurisdictions across 18 states that allow public defenders to represent immigrants in immigration court. Right now, courts routinely have ruled that deportation hearings are administrative and not criminal, that deportation is not a punishment, and therefore attorneys are not required by the Constitution to be appointed to these people. That leaves it up to states, individual states and jurisdictions, to determine if they will allow public defenders to represent those in immigration proceedings. It should be noted that about 40% of immigrants right now are unrepresented in their cases. And 
studies have shown that immigrants with representation are over five times more likely to get relief from deportation than those without. And this is because it's hard to understand immigration law. These people coming in don't know what their possible relief is or don't know what to say or how to apply for a lot of these, the relief that they could get under immigration law. Therefore, it's vitally important that they're given the right to have an attorney. And hopefully other jurisdictions will do this and states will pass it statewide so that everyone in the state is able to get an attorney if they are in immigration proceedings. So that's it for this week. Thank you for joining me for another episode. As always, if you have any questions or comments, please email me at info at immigrationbriefs.com. Music on the podcast is News Breaks by Stephen Cohn. I hope to talk to you again next week. Until then, ciao.